In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsing. And with me all the way across the pond is Mr. Parascience himself, the dapper Mr. Steve Parsons. Good afternoon, Ron. I've got to talk really slowly because my broadband is running really slowly. Okay. I've had terrible trouble all day fighting with British Telecom to try and get it sped up. So mm. if I sound a bit stuttery or start buffering, please excuse me. No problem, no problem. You know, uh, I've, I've got to ask you a thing, a uh, question, and... Uh, as I mentioned before on previous shows, that um, my wife and I are, you know, big fans of Downtown Abbey, or Downton Abbey, excuse me, and also Midsummer's Murders. But I'm trying to figure out what is Midsummer's. I don't understand. Is that a location, or is it? I mean, that's from your neck of the woods, Steve. Uh, Midsummer is a mythical county in the middle of England somewhere, um, with a group of small villages, all named Midsummer something, Parva Magna. Uh, It's a mythical county where there are nobody left alive because everybody has been murdered. Pretty much, pretty much. So that's what they have, like, you know, Midsummer Coventry and Midsummer's Derby, and it's it's all towns in this mythical county. Yeah, it's all villages in this little mythical county. Um, ah, but, very cool. But the the killer is actually uh, the policeman because him and the sergeant are the only people left alive. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's just about every week they kill off, you know, half the county. So there you go. Anyway, so uh, we've had a terrible blizzard here. I don't know if uh, you heard yeah, about it. Yeah, but... it made our news. Uh, a, meet, a three foot of snow, was it? Yeah, yeah, You're all right? yeah. Yeah, we had uh, we didn't quite have three feet here, thank goodness. Uh, only about uh, two and a half feet, so um, we were pretty lucky. They gave it a name, didn't they? Wasn't it mid midwinter storm Nemo? Or Nemo. Storm? Nemo. Nemo. Yes. After the we fish. found Nemo, well, Nemo found us. One or the other. <laughs> yeah, it made our news, um, but uh, we 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 were having snow as well, but only only about one inch, inch or two, which is mm-hmm. enough to bring Great Britain to a stop. 
nothing uh, stops the the empire that the sun never sets on. Uh, an inch of snow will stop it pretty effectively. <laughs> but anyway, um, we have a, a very interesting guest on our show today. I have, have had him on in the past, you know, years ago, and he's written several books. Uh, most notably is the, the reincarnation of uh, Abraham Lincoln, and. Um, He's also studied under a Swami, which is kind of cool. And uh, he's also written, uh, written a new book, I believe, uh, Ghost Hunt- Yoga for Ghost Hunting or something. Richard, are you there? Yes. Richard, uh, hi, Ron. How are you doing? Good. What, what's the name of your new book? Is it- it's uh, titled The Yoga of Ghost Hunting. The Yoga of Ghost Hunting, which I, I found intriguing in itself. But, you know, uh, this, well, welcome aboard and, and very nice speaking Thank with you. you again. Thank you. Same here. And, um, you know, the, one of the reasons, of course, we, we, we brought you on is because February is President's Day, is, uh, I think that's next week, and uh, it basically was George Washington's and uh, Lincoln's birthdays, and they put it together and made this President's Day thing. So uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because Abraham Lincoln, uh, there's a lot of you know, mystery in regards to him as far as the psychic world and, and so forth. It's not only, you're not, you know, Count being a, a great president in itself. So how did you get into writing this book and, and the conclusions that you made, which I'm going to let you describe yourself? Well, actually, uh, Ron, uh, today is Lincoln's birthday, and I think that's very auspicious for having our, our discussion today. Oh, and, that is uh, right. Yes, and uh, actually what happened was uh, I'm, I'm a person who's a, a spiritual person. I'm a yogi and a minister and things like that, and uh, uh, I do uh, various things to, to help people in various ways, and uh, a lot of those doorways to do those things kind of closed for me at one point a number of years ago. And uh, I was actually flying across country, and uh, I just closed my eyes in meditation while I was on this airplane, and uh, just uh, opened myself up to the universe and said, give me a project to work on, something I could throw all my energy, everything I know into. And within less than a minute's time, the idea for this book came to me, and I was reminded then, of uh, something that I'd read before. Uh, there was a great spiritual teacher, a great world teacher, a spiritual master. His name was uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. And he wrote a book that uh, is world famous. Uh, millions have read it and been inspired by it. It's called Autobiography of a Yogi. And uh, the Beatles and others have, uh, were really into this book. And uh, uh, he said a number of years ago, that uh, Abraham Lincoln had been uh, an advanced Himalayan yogi in a past life, and that he was reborn as the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh. And uh, while I was sitting on that airplane, the thought just came to me, you know, both of these men were very famous. Uh, There's all these biographies written about them and all their own writings to boot. Uh, Wouldn't it be interesting to compare their lives, just to look for instances of uh, connection there uh, within the various things that happened in their lives between their personal habits and so on. I got very excited at this thought, and I started to dive into the histories of both men, and uh, I was just overwhelmed by what I found. I thought I might find a few interesting connections, but, uh, Ron, I ended up finding nearly 500 
fascinating similarities and connections between both men. And uh, there are connections that are not the same sort of connections that you might find with everyone, that maybe they both like pizza <laughs> or things like that, you know, but uh, that both men lost their sons while centered in the public eye. Uh, both viewed their sons' remains after their sons had been dead for weeks. Um, they both had light blue eyes set deep in the sockets, both studied people as if from a distance. Uh, on the last day of his life, Lincoln spoke nostalgically of returning to central Illinois again. And Charles Lindbergh spent months on a daily basis flying over and viewing the land that Lincoln had pined for. So you see how if you die with a desire, that desire ends up becoming fulfilled in a future lifetime. Uh, both were military okay. men at heart, although neither had much of a military career. Uh, Lincoln was shot behind his ear, and Lindbergh was afraid of the sound of gunfire. Uh, both were tall and thin with long arms and legs, big hands and feet. Uh, both men spoke with the dead, which is interesting. Uh, while giving speeches, Lindbergh sounded just like Lincoln. He spoke in a high-pitched voice with a strong Midwestern prairie accent, which wasn't his normal speaking voice which is very interesting. But, uh, you know, they're both victims of crimes of the century, crimes that were called crimes of the century, right. uh, the, the focus of huge processions in Manhattan and elsewhere in America. Uh, one of the most interesting things, I think, is that Lincoln gave a great gift to America and was never really rewarded for it. Uh, he died soon after freeing the slaves, soon after the Civil War was over. Uh, and Lindbergh was given the greatest reward in the history of the United States up to that time. So you see, again, where karma comes into play. Somebody does something really so good. So Lincoln was rewarded for, I mean, Lindbergh was rewarded for Lincoln, basically. Yes, he was given uh, Lincoln's reward. That's that's uh, according to what Yogananda had said. Uh, one of the many fascinating similarities or connections between the two men. So with us today also is uh, Steve Parsons from the UK. He is Yes, hi, Steve. Hi, uh, Richard. I don't know if you can hear me. It's it's a really bad connection I've got. Oh, okay. I hope you could hear me as well. I, I, I'm hearing you loud and clear. Oh, that's good. I can hear you pretty well, but it is a, a bad connection tonight. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you must have done something in your past life while you're being suffered now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you told me that I'm same thing in your last lifetime. <laughs> Well, I'm saying I'm a great fan of uh, Lindbergh in particular because I've always had a passion for aviation and flying and grew up, of course, with the spirit of St. Louis yeah. and reading all about the exploits of Lindbergh, setting up with Pan American with one trip. Mm -hmm. um, Lincoln, uh, your president, it's, it's something we learn at school, but we don't uh, have a great deal of detail. Um, but certainly with Charles Lindbergh. Um, I have a, a love of aviation and so a knowledge of Lindbergh, uh, but I'd never realized there was a connection um, or quite so many possible links and connections between the two. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Lindbergh actually lived for a while in the UK, in uh, the southern area of, uh, of uh, England, someplace called Longbarn. I think that was the name of the place. I believe it was in either Sussex or Suffolk or somewhere around there. I, I was aware he lived in the UK for a short period. Um, I, I, I don't know the exact place, but I, I was aware of that. Um, he was a great childhood hero of mine, and indeed mm -hmm. of millions of others, of course. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Yes, uh, in fact, uh, Lindbergh, after he flew the Atlantic, was compared favorably with uh, Lincoln. Uh, I actually saw an old uh, Boy Scout manual from around that time period, and uh, they had a Boy Scout, you know, looking up into the distance and, uh, you know, sort of like he's inspired by the light behind him. And uh, right next to him on one side was Abraham Lincoln, and on the other side was Charles Lindbergh. Uh, he, he, uh, Lincoln, both men were, were very highly regarded at certain parts of their lives. You know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, talk about uh, Lincoln, especially in, in his, uh, you know, dealing with the, the other realms and so forth. Uh, we don't hear too much about Lindbergh. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know of a, a uh, I don't know if I talked to you about it or someone else, that when he did do the transatlantic thought, he did have a... Uh, uh, an experience that he later wrote about. Is that, uh, do you remember something like that? Uh, yes, actually it was a, a very powerful experience, and I, I, I mentioned that in my book, and it it's, uh, has a lot of ties into what Yogananda had said about the same soul as Lincoln and Lindbergh having been a Himalayan yogi in a past life, because it was a very powerful spiritual and yogic experience. And he also ended up talking with ghosts, apparently, on that flight, which is interesting. Uh, he was about halfway across the Atlantic. Uh, the night before he took off, he had a hard time sleeping, and he was about to fall asleep, and some one of his assistants or people that were, were helping him at the time uh, knocked on his door right then and wanted to talk to him right when he was about to fall asleep. So I think he got about less than an hour's sleep that night. And then... Um, he took off an airplane and flew uh, 33 hours from uh, a field in uh, on Long Island, New York, uh, all the way to Paris, France. And so he was up for a really, really long period of time. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but uh, if you've ever tried to stay up all night, there's a certain time right before... Uh, it starts to, the, the dawn starts to break where it's really hard to keep your eyes open. And this is the time period that Lindbergh was experiencing. He'd, he'd missed a whole night's sleep the night before. He was, he was going, staying up a second night in a row. And, uh, it's very interesting that, uh, yogis often try to do this, often try to deprive themselves of sleep or just try to meditate rather than sleeping. But, uh, he'd been up for that really long period of time and he was trying to stay awake. He had no co-pilot, just himself and this, this uh, great big uh, uh, engine, this great uh, airplane that he was flying. And uh, uh, he knew that, uh, well, there were two parts of his mind that were having an argument. One was the, uh, the subconscious mind, which was saying, look, you've, you've got to fall asleep. If you don't sleep, you're going to die. You know, uh, People just can't stay up like this for this long without sleeping. And the other uh, part was saying, no, if you... <laughs> If you fall asleep, then you're going to fall into the Atlantic and die. And so with the tension between the conscious and the subconscious catapulted Lindbergh into a state of superconsciousness. And suddenly this other third part of his mind that Lindbergh called uh, started to talk to him and he said, look, you're going to rest, but you're not going to fall asleep and everything was going to be fine. And he was too tired to argue about it. So he just surrendered and suddenly he felt this deep state of peace his body was like on autopilot, still steering the airplane, while his consciousness was not really focused on flying at all. He was focused on something else, which was that the inside of his airplane suddenly became 
uh, connected to the astral world, which is the energy world behind the physical world. That's the world that ghosts live in. And uh, he, he suddenly saw that the uh, inside of the airplane had expanded. It was very tight quarters there, but suddenly there was all sorts of room. And uh, he could see not only in front of himself, but also behind himself. He said as if his head was one great eyeball. And this is called spherical vision. It's a very rare experience that yogis experience sometimes in meditation. And uh, while he was experiencing that, he saw these three spirits or ghosts. They entered the back of the airplane. And he said he had this long discussion with them that was very fulfilling to him. It's like he said the answer questions that he'd wondered about all his life. Uh, he felt that he said as if he had known these spirits before. He said perhaps in a previous existence. And uh, he didn't know, and maybe he had met these spirits in the Himalayas. Maybe they were uh, other yogis that he had known who had come to at this very crucial moment of his life to be there to support him. But uh, they had this long conversation. He said he could never remember a single thing they talked about <laughs> afterward. But it was also deeply meaningful to him that he mentioned it in three of his autobiographical writings. And including the last one. And in that one, he kept going back to it over and over again. And so it was a very powerful experience for him. And again, all during this time, his body was flying the airplane. He wasn't looking out the window. He wasn't checking the uh, compass, which actually didn't work during part of the flight. Um, everything. Finally, he came out of the state. And uh, after he did... Uh, he looked out the window, and he looked down, and he was able to see a coastline. It was a coastline of Ireland, and he was almost exactly on course. And the odds of this, considering everything that had taken place, sometimes he had to fly through fog, through clouds. Uh, he wasn't sure, and I said, mentioned before, his compass didn't always work. But somehow, through this experience, he was kept uh, pretty much exactly on course. And uh, he made a touchdown uh, at the field in Paris, uh, almost exactly on the time that he had planned for it. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. What, what do you think, Steve? Uh, I've heard the accounts of um, Lindbergh's uh, dreamlike visions on the flight before, um, mm -hmm. but I, I, I have to, I, I, I guess, act a bit like Cal would, would say at this point, and, and just ask the obvious, because he, he has been awake for, you know, a very considerable time, mm -hmm. and I know from my own experience, having been awake, um, you know, for 30, 40, 50 hours, um, which on two occasions, it did get to that length of time, and you do start to have some very strange and very bizarre hallucinations and thoughts, uh, and I was completely disconnected from my from my body and from the the things that were going on around me, even though I was still awake and functioning. Um, and I, you have to, you know, raise that 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 question. I, um, I know, but that's that's kind of like the easy way of doing it, Stephen. Is because I know. In my own experience, and, and I haven't told this to too many people, I have gone, um, it, it's a, it sounds like the craziest things. Uh, I remember one night that I actually, it was a cold night, and I put my head under the blankets to warm my nose because it's such a big nose. And when I did that, I actually stepped into another world. I mean, my eyes were open. I actually called to my wife to see it. I mean, I could look up and see trees. As, and not like, 
you know, this was real dimensional world. And it, it was like an entire, you know, it was not like narrow, it was, went on forever and ever. And it wasn't like you were viewing it, you were really there. You could touch the things. It was really amazing. I had actually called out to my wife to to see this because it was so amazing. And, and I've had another experience the same way. We're totally awake, but I was somewhere else. I was in a, a place where there was like, it was like a temple almost. It was all this Chinese carving and stuff. And, and it was very dimensional, very large and, and not in the space it was. And this is with my eyes open, no sleep deprivation. So what these experiences are, I can't tell you. But I, I think, think yes, yes, I think if, if there's something um, subconscious, there will be a dreamy energy about it. Right. Um, you know, I, I stayed up late uh, long too, and had various had various experiences with that. Uh, right. And the, the way that you can differentiate between the two is something that is uh, what we, the yogis call superconscious. So it'll be a heightened level of energy, and if it's exactly. subconscious, it'll be a dreamy sort of energy. Everything will be vague. It's like you know, you you have these uh, different kinds of dreams at different times, where um, a lot of dreams where you're just going through your subconscious and just sort of pick, you know, cherry picking your various, <laughs> you know, thoughts or ideas or desires or fears or anxieties and just sort of patching them all together and they go from one thing to another nothing makes much sense and then suddenly you're in the dream state and suddenly everything is very clear and maybe you'll see somebody that you used to know that's no longer alive and you have this really amazing conversation with them and it's like you know, I really feel that Joe or whoever it is is here, and then I'm talking to him. Actually, Lincoln said he had experiences like that repeatedly with his son Willie, who died in the White House, which is mentioned a number of times, by the way, in that recent movie about Abraham Lincoln. Um, but uh, that's the differentiation between subconscious and superconscious, uh, the level of energy. I had an experience, you know, Steve, when I was, uh, I visited England some years ago, and I went to uh, Battle Abbey, where the Battle of Hastings took place. And uh, when I was there, I had a very powerful experience. And, um, you know, someone could say, well, maybe that was just a dream sort of thing. But it was so powerful. I, uh, I went to uh, where the, the battle took place. And uh, actually, before I got to that location, I was I had gotten off the train and was talking with a friend who was living in England at the time. I hadn't seen him for many years, and he was telling me some funny stories, and we were laughing together. And we were walking along this stone wall, and all of a sudden, my my whole mood shifted, and it was like 180 degrees. It was totally different. One second to another, just snapping of a finger, suddenly it was totally different. And I was suddenly, this, this cloud was like over my head, and I could hardly speak. But somehow I was able to communicate to my friend what I was going through. I asked him, we were going to visit this site together. I said, would you mind if, if we split off and visited it separately and then joined up later? And he said, sure. And so uh, I went to where this battle took place. And uh, I walked, I just ignored all the dioramas and said, well, at this time of day, this scene, this happened between Harold and William the Conqueror, etc. And I just went out to the middle of the battlefield, and I just sat down there where the sheep were, <laughs> and they were buying and nudging me, and I sat there and I wept for about 45 minutes. And I saw superimposed over the landscape, I had an experience I'd never had like that before or since. Uh, images of soldiers uh, fighting and hitting, hitting, you know, slashing at each other with swords, uh, horses rearing, uh, spears going up and shields going up and so on. And uh, it just lasted during this whole period. It was like superimposed on the landscape. 
And um, an interesting thing about that is that I had been told by a psychic that I had been at that battle in a past life, but I wasn't thinking about that when I was walking along that brick wall, nor was I really trying to tune into it when I had that experience sitting down. It just came to me. And along with this, this very intense emotion, there were, like I said, I just wept. And it was like this feeling of sorrow that just came out of me that took 45 minutes for it to go away. And it felt like something that I'd been holding on to for about a thousand years. And I think this was a past life experience. And I think it was a super conscious experience. Again, that's a differentiation for a yogi. Is it energetic? Is it more heightened awareness? Or is your awareness diminished? Hmm. So that's, uh, we kind of went on a tangent there, uh, Stephen. But do you do you see that we're we're talking about something that's a little different than sleep deprivation, Stephen? Okay, looks like we lost them. Huh. All right. So, okay, that's all right. So, anyways, uh, Richard, uh, I mean, when you. You wrote this book, and you wrote this several years ago, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, what was the, I, I was going to say, what was the feedback on it as far as, uh, was it kind of accepted, or, or was there a, a kind of a, a lot of people who didn't, couldn't accept it, let's put it that way? <laughs> well, uh, I, I'd have to say that I had different feedback from every single person who <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> spoke about it, but uh, a lot of people were found it fast. And in fact, uh, by and large, that was the one word that I heard that I heard from most people is fascinating. Uh, and I found it fascinating to work on. Uh, it was an incredible journey just to work on this book. Um, and uh, some people uh, disagreed with parts of it and agreed with other parts. And other people had the same experience, except in reverse. They agreed with the parts that the other people disagreed with and agreed disagreed with the parts the other people agreed with and so on. Uh, but it's just uh, kind of interesting to see uh, different people's take on it. But, you know, it was a real sort of fascinating journey working on this, uh, Ron, because um, I would uh, be... I would uh, be reading about one of the men, say about Abraham Lincoln, and suddenly the thought would come into my mind, I wonder if there's a connection in the life of Charles Lindbergh. And this is all I was working on the book. Uh, I spent about 10 years working on it, uh, a lot of research. Yeah. And uh, uh, soon after I had that thought, I would be either in a library or a bookstore or someplace where there were books, and I would see a book on a shelf, just a spine, and something would compel me to open it, and it may not have been exactly on either of those two men. But something would make me open the book, and I would open to a page, and right on the page I was looking at, I would find the answer to the question I was looking for. And this didn't happen just once, but over and over again. It was really quite a, a fascinating experience just to work on this book. Uh, I tried to open myself up to find all the different connections that were possible between them. And, uh, you know, I, I kept getting ideas even after I'd finished the book. Finally, I had to say, look, this is enough. <laughs> 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 I have to finish and write this book. You know, I've got nearly 500 as things as it is. And and uh, so uh, that was when uh, uh, I started stopping receiving ideas about it. But uh, I could pick it up now and continue to work on it. It's It's like it's open-ended. Okay. Well, we're going to have to take a break right now. Um, mm -hmm. So if you can hold on, we'll be back 
in a second. Right. You are just to say I'm back as well. <laughs> you are. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International right here on Tojinet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. And we'll be right back after the following messages with Richard Salver and Steve Bosses, maybe. <laughs> Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more. All in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place an oasis in this hectic world. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange, deranged. So grab your favorite rule, it's time to rendezvous, as we give awards to the Parax family. Take 6,427. All right. Hi, I'm Ron Kolick, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And Cemetery Tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. So anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Dan and Ron. See you then. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick right here on TojiNet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. And our very special guest is author Richard Salver, is it? Is I saying that right? Yes, yeah, Salver, that's right. 
I butcher the names all the time. I apologize for that. <laughs> it must be in my path life. I was only up to the third grade education. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, Lincoln himself, Abraham Lincoln himself, uh, he didn't attend much school. Uh, he he went around, uh, he, he just had uh, these people that would come through. They were called ABC schools. Uh, where someone would come in and he would repeat lessons out loud, and all the kids would have to repeat after them. It huh. didn't sound very like very much fun. Yeah. Uh, Charles Lindbergh had a similar experience where he just uh, went around and, and had part of a year here and part of a year there, uh, just because he moved around so much in his childhood. You know, what's amazing is is my mom, uh, who died a couple of years ago, she was 98 years old, mm-hmm. and she, because she had to work, she only went to, uh, had a grammar school education, but she was extremely intelligent. She spoke like three or four languages, and, mm-hmm. and you know, she would put my grammar to shame, and uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, it almost kind of gives you a case of reincarnation thing. <laughs> yes, it, it, it doesn't uh, matter to for some many people uh, what sort of education they have, if they have that sort of intelligence. Abraham Lincoln, as I mentioned, didn't have much schooling at all, mm. and yet uh, he's, he's considered the greatest president in the history of the United States by, by many. Yeah. And uh, Charles Lindbergh, uh, you know, had that uh, poor education, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Spirit of St. Louis. Well, although I although I find this fascinating, um, you know I don't believe in reincarnation. Mm. Uh, I haven't been able to grasp uh, that. Yeah, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and it's just mm-hmm. I haven't been able to uh, believe in it yet. Um, it doesn't. My life is always changing. It's a journey I'm on. So before Ron, we, Ron, yes? can I just jump in there? I, I um, was going to just going to ask you because we miss you. Go ahead. Yeah, I can I suggest that you have a I mean there have been countless books written uh in support of and against reincarnation. Uh-huh. Um some of them are, you know, make very compelling reading, but one of them um produced in 1966 by the American Society of Psychical Research um is probably uh by Ian Stevenson MD. Uh, is probably one of the landmark books for those interested in studying the subject. Uh, it's entitled 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. Um, and he's, he actually uh, goes through all of the various arguments for and against reincarnation. And his conclusion at the end of it is, is actually very open and, although not uh, it outright supportive of reincarnation certainly suggests that psychical research should pay a great deal of attention to this area of study. Um, and so I would suggest that anybody who who's interested in the subject, uh, as I say, should should certainly uh, pick up this preceding uh, proceedings of the American Society for Psychical Research. Yeah. Um, Twenty cases suggestive of reincarnation. Yeah. And, and, to. I, and I know that when uh, David Wells, of course, is, is big into reincarnation, he came over here, he tried to uh, turn me to the dark side, but uh, <laughs> uh, I just couldn't bite that bullet. Um, you, you know, I, I have written uh, uh, forwards for people who have written books about uh, not believing in, in reincarnation, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Let me mm-hmm. let me say that perfectly clear. I just haven't. I just don't feel there's enough evidence in in my little corner to believe it myself. So that, you know, that being uh, said, it's, 
No, I was just going to say, I can understand Ron's, Ron's uh, perspective because the implications of reincarnation are, are absolutely uh, beyond imagination, aren't they? Uh, the fact that we can return and uh, re-inhabit bodies and that we go round on some sort of merry-go-round um, end- or seemingly endlessly, but then that's against sort of counter uh, the spiritualist perspective, which suggests that we live here on, on this plane of existence and then we progress to another plane. Um, so the two, the two arguments uh, do at times contradict each other. You know, a number of people uh, find themselves just sort of uh, propelled into a study of reincarnation, either having not believed in it before. Uh, In my case, it was a thing where I actually did believe in it. I mean, it made sense to me that we would not just have one existence on this earth, however brief or however long it might be, uh, and then, you know, everything would be lost. It just seemed like a great waste, but that... Uh, you would continue to learn through various lifetimes. Each, each you might consider each uh, uh, lifetime as like a day in school. Uh, but that over time, you know, that uh, our souls would become refined. We would learn our lessons in life, and then eventually that we would uh, graduate. And uh, the yogi's view is that after, you know, uh, however many lifetimes it takes, that once we uh, understand the deepest truths of life, that we would uh, merge with spirit and no longer need to reincarnate again. Except to, for some souls who would come back to just help others. And these are like the spiritual masters and others who, who would come to this plane. But for me, you know, I actually believed in it for a number of years. I'd uh, studied the teachings on it, especially as explained by Yogananda, who I'd mentioned before. And I uh, just found them, they just made sense to me. Uh, Yogananda's explanation was very logical and made, made perfect sense to me, at least. Uh, but I hadn't had anything that would uh, suggest uh, who I might have been in a past life. And so I went to psychics, and that was kind of interesting. And you go, well, you, you go to a psychic, and you think, well, if I lived, maybe I was a hero, uh, a spiritual person. Maybe I was a great yogi or saint or something in past life. Maybe I was both a hero and a saint. There you go. <laughs> and then you find out you were a farmer or, you know, this, <laughs> you know things that you'd rather not know about or not think that you might be. Uh, and uh, But it was all just sort of like, not a parlor game, but it was just something I believed in that I thought was interesting, you know, certainly a fascinating thought. And anyone who's ever considered it wonders who I, who was I in a past life. But uh, it, just a number of years ago, about uh, now at this point, it was like about uh, about 20 years ago or so, I just started having these experiences on a daily basis that just pointed to reincarnation. This is very powerful experiences. I mentioned one of those uh, when I went to visit uh, Battle Abbey in, uh, in southern England there. But I had others as well. I, I, one night I, I, was, uh, I had this dream where I was, uh, in a, uh, it, I was in a building or an attic that had a very high ceiling to it. And I saw these people floating around the top of the attic, and they were dressed in costumes that I knew was a very old-fashioned from hundreds of years ago. But I had no knowledge of uh, history, especially uh, European history, although I was fascinated by whatever I did read about it. I just had nothing like that in my schooling, so I didn't know much about it. But they were dressed in very particular costumes. And after that, I started to become interested and I started reading about it, and I realized that, that they all came from the time of the Tudor period, 
in England, uh, Shakespeare, the time of Shakespeare. And uh, this was just really fascinating to me. I would have so many experiences that way, and they all pointed to reincarnation. And through those experiences, uh, I learned a lot. And uh, I put a lot of what I learned into my book, uh, The Reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if, I, go, the go question, ahead, a question that's often posed, though, is if, if we're here in this life, this existence now to learn and to then progress... It seems illogical to my way of thinking and to the way of thinking of a lot of people that we effectively start with a blank memory with every cycle of life. Um, No lessons apparently uh, would be learned. Uh, It just seems to be, surely it would be, it would make more sense if we were to hit, uh, to live and to progress, that we at least remember the lessons that we learned the last time around. Yes, uh, actually, Steve, but the, the thing is, uh, at least what uh, the yogis teach is that we do have a memory and that it comes through. It's, it's not a direct memory, because if you can imagine everything that people experience in their lives, you know, the, the, the victories and the failures, the, the, the joys and the betrayals and all that, uh, being in the mind of a little child growing up, um, it would just be overwhelming. They couldn't function. Um, but if, if, but what you do see is that children, even when they're born, have habits and they have these gifts. They have these abilities. They have some, uh, some child, uh, like my son, he, he's, he's incredibly, he has a great power of concentration, uh, much greater than mine, even when he was born. Right when I picked him up <laughs> in the hospital, they held, I was holding him. I was half asleep because we'd been up all night, you know, for this birth. And suddenly I looked at him, it was like a bucket of cold water had been splashed over my head. He was just like, who are you, you know? <laughs> this is really powerful energy, powerful focused mind. And he has it now where he, he scored the highest grade ever in his school for mathematics. He just has this oh, wow. really powerful mind, something that uh, someone else might spend their lifetime trying to develop. You know, he has right off the bat. And this explains the... the uh, inequality, that one might say, you know, in, in America we have this phrase, all men are created equal as part of our constitution. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's true in certain ways, but in other ways it's not true because we have to have different experiences. People have developed various abilities and so on in other lifetimes, and you can see them in, in little children. So some uh, little kid just sort of you know, going around and bossing everybody around might have been, you know, royalty or, you know, a boss or a general or something in a past life. Um, you just, this, this, is, this is the memory as it comes to us. And that veil that comes over us of our past lives is there to, to help us because unless we're already very spiritually developed as a child, again, it would just, it would just be overwhelming. Would that, would that, would a rationalist not perhaps um, argue then that this difference is um, partly genetic, partly learned behaviour, uh, partly the the developmental differences that are normal within individuals? I, I for example, have a two-year-old son uh, who has grown up and is different than his peers and uh, his, his siblings. And these, you know... Uh, uh, Child development psychologists, psychiatrists um, would would offer explanations that are different and are also plausible. Um, you know, how does how do we you know equate the two? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I guess it's a, it's a question for each person, you know, and uh, we will come to an understanding that uh, in connection with our own experiences, our own understanding, or, you know, and so on. Um, but uh, for for me, I, I just uh, see this very clearly. Um, and uh, to me, you know, someone comes into a family that has genetic potential there, and then uh, because of one's uh, own consciousness, uh, while the body is forming a family, we'll pick and choose which genetic traits are in tune with that spirit, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, it can go either way. You know, it just depends on where a person is coming from. But uh, for me, to me, it's, it's, it's very obvious. I, <laughs> I see so many children that are already fully developed. They don't have the influences in their lives to create, make them so strongly that way, one way or another. You know, they are who they are. Uh, when they're born, as soon as they're born, you know, and, you know, maybe they hear a few things coming in through the womb and so on like that, through the ambiotic fluid and so on. But uh, by and large, uh, they they come in a ready, fully formed personality, you know, very much so. So, uh, so was, was Lindbergh a fully formed Abraham Lincoln? I mean... Well, you see signs of that, you know, and I'll give you just one example that I put toward the end of the book. Uh, something that historians point out is that uh, Abraham Lincoln had this, uh, they said he was obsessed with death, and he mused on it so much. Now, he was surrounded by death. Uh, when he was young, his mother died, um, and uh, his, several of his, a couple of his children died, his boys, he, all of his children were boys. And, uh, you know, then he became president during the Civil War, and many people that he know died during that conflict. And uh, But even still, they just point out how much it was a part of his consciousness. And there was this big question that Lincoln was asking, why did there have to be death? And it was something that he mused on, and it was like a, a whetstone for his mind, his consciousness, to just sort of sharpen it. You know, it's like a Zen koan, you know, just... Repeating, you know, just going over and over into his mind, why did there have to be death? And then always focusing on death and always thinking about death. Uh, he had a poem that was his favorite poem, and it was about death. It said, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? Uh, it talks about the, the shroud and the, the grave, and oh, oh, why should the spirit of mortal be proud? And he used to repeat it to himself over and over again. And uh, so this was a mental obsession that Lincoln had all the way up to his own death. And then we see uh, Charles Lindbergh is writing in his autobiographical writings that when he was a young boy on his farm in Little Falls, Minnesota, that he went out to the chicken coop with the man who worked at the farm, and the man took one of the chickens out and chopped its head off. And uh, little Charles Lindbergh is there. You know, most kids would say, yuck, that's gross, or that's really weird, or whatever. Charles Lindbergh, this little boy, looked at this chicken. He looked at what happened, its body flailing around after death. He said, why, did there, why, why, why is there death? Why does there have to be death? The same thought that Lincoln was meditating on all of his life, reincarnated in the mind of this little boy, uh, Charles Lindbergh. And he molded on this thought, too, just like Lincoln, throughout his life. And in his last autobiography, he wrote about how he finally came to a point of peace with it, how he finally saw that death was part of life. And then Lindbergh started to, to he gave a really interesting analogy. He said, I wonder if life just doesn't continue on. You know, near the end of his life, Lindbergh lived in Hawaii. And there's this beautiful little rivulet of waterfall 
that uh, was near where he lived, uh, near Hana in Maui. And he said, I wonder if life doesn't gather in a, a pool, like in this waterfall, and then it'll run in a river for a while, then gather in another pool for a time. Just, uh, it's a great analogy for reincarnation. But uh, he, he meditated on this throughout his life, and he finally saw that death was just a part of life, and he, he, he came to peace with it. And, and at the end of his life, there was a little note that he left right on his deathbed, right next to it. He said, I know there is infinity outside myself. Now I wonder if there is an infinity inside myself as well. And it's like maybe he's hearkening back to that past life as an Himalayan yogi. But, um, you know, here's, here's again, uh, again, one of the purposes of reincarnation. Over time, gradually, we refine our understanding about something. You know, you'll wonder about something in a particular lifetime. Maybe you don't have time to do, to do anything about it. Or you become interested in, in learning something, like you would have a desire to become a musician, but, you know, you have to make food and put it on the table, and you have to support your family, and you don't have time to really put much energy into it. But that doesn't matter, because in the long halls of time, eventually you'll have time to put energy into it. Eventually you'll be able to explore it as far as you want to go and come to your own realization about it. Believe it or not, Richard, we are running just about out of time. And, oh, wow, uh, okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah. once again, if you want to learn, question, Ron. yeah, one quick thing: uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Lincoln and Lindbergh, uh, you can get his book, which is Soul Journey from Lincoln to Lindbergh, and um, that's by Richard Salver. And all right, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, it's a question I'd like to put to Richard, um, and it's a question that that's often put to to us psychical researchers. Um, Often, you know, people say, what, what would it take to convince you of survival or what, what, what is your proof? Um, Richard, I, I'm prepared to change my point of view if presented with evidence, um, you know, in favor of survival or in favor of ghosts. What, what would your position be if, if science came up with a, a, a test uh, that said, do you know what? It's all in the mind. All of this um, stuff about spiritualism, it can, all be, it can all be properly, rationally explained. How would your position, um, how would you, would, would you be prepared to move position? Well, you know, it's a very good question, Stephen, and I think it's related to the question that people ask is if there is a God, and if science were able to prove that there wasn't. And I think, uh, I think the, the best answer to that question is uh, our, uh, if we are better people through uh, having a certain belief and acting on that belief, then, then uh, I don't see why there's any harm in it, is there? But no, no, uh, no, I also want to say you, uh, uh, you were mentioning my books, uh, The Reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln and the Yoga of mm -hmm. Ghost Hunting. Let me just yep. mention my website real quick before we get off the air. Uh, it's yep. called uh, LincolnReincarnation.com. If you type that in, you'll get right to my, to my website. Okay, and and I, you know, we still got a few minutes left, and I do wanted to touch on your new book because I found that fascinating. And this is the one about yoga and ghost hunting. You want to you want to explain a little bit about 
first of all, what's, what it is about. And yes. How, yes. Well, uh, just very quickly, um, uh, after I wrote my reincarnation book, I was invited to speak at ghost conferences because a lot of people are interested there also in reincarnation. And I realized that I had a lot to say about ghosts because I, I actually had, uh, for a number of reasons, one is that uh, Yogananda spoke about the astral world where ghosts live, and so I was able to write about this from a perspective and speak on it in those conferences from a perspective that uh, ghost hunters had never heard of before, and they were really fascinated, and they heard nothing about any of this. So I was able to give uh, techniques of psychoprotection and so on. And I also told them about an experience that I had while working on the Lincoln book. I lived in a haunted uh, house. Uh, uh, it was actually a townhouse. And uh, my experiences there were quite fascinating. I ended up feeling like I made friends with these ghosts. And we had a, uh, somebody who was a transitioner who came in and helped them to move on the other side. But I spent uh, weeks alone there in the house through most of the day while working on this book, just uh, sort of hanging out with them. And uh, it, was, it was just uh, actually at the end of it all, it was a wonderful experience. Um, when they were freed and they were gone, uh, they were Native Americans. It was in a house in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, they had had some sort of negative run-in with missionaries or whatever. They disliked any pictures of Christ or any crosses, crucifixes on the walls and things like that. And uh, they were quite angry, and I could feel their emotion in the house. And I, 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 could, I found they were there because uh, I heard my wife coming down the stairs, and I had this thought, I wonder if I put my head around the corner and she wouldn't be there. And I turned around the corner laughing at myself, and there was nobody there. And uh, so uh, we started, we, and we'd been feeling this sort of emotional energy in the place. As a, as a yogi, my experience of ghosts is a sort of a heavy feeling in the heart, uh, along, as well as a feeling of almost like a moving through water, like you're underwater. And I've had that experience numerous times uh, in places that were haunted. But uh, again, a, a lot of that information and uh, other experiences that friends of mine have had and myself, and uh, also techniques of psychic protection from the yogis, is in this book, The Yoga of Ghost Hunting. And again, that's LincolnReincarnation.com. So there you go. <laughs> uh, Steve, anything you want to add before we let Richard go? No, it's it's. I think it might be worth uh, getting Richard back on because obviously ghost hunting is more my domain. Um, and it would be fascinating, obviously, to talk more about the the new book, um, mm -hmm. The Yoga of Ghost Hunting. So uh, I look forward to that opportunity. Oh, we can probably arrange that, connection. I think, Richard. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be wonderful, and I would enjoy it very much. Richard, what state do you live in? Uh, California, still in California, uh, Northern West California. Coast, uh, West Coast, West um, Coast. Yeah. You see, it's still only breakfast time for Richard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, you, it's, it's right around lunchtime, actually. <laughs> that, you know, that's where all the swamis are anyways, because they can't stand the cold in the northeast. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say they tilted the country and all the fruits, nuts, and flakes all rolled to California, so that's where we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, thank you so much for being on the show, and we do appreciate it once again, uh, Soul Journey uh, from Lincoln the Lindbergh, and uh, I can't remember that title. It's two words, like uh, yoga or ghost hunting. <laughs> the, the yoga of ghost hunting and the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. It's been there a pleasure, uh, Ron and Steve, to be with you as well. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Well, that was pretty cool, huh? It's, I mean, like I said, I don't, I don't believe in reincarnation, but I find it fascinating. I mean, I, I won't rule it out that I, I couldn't, you know, eventually believe in it, but as at this point in, in time, I, I, you know, I just can't wrap my arms around it. 
Well, as I say, there have been some very interesting studies done um, by the society, various societies of psychical research and countless, countless books um, in favour of it, against it. And I've spoken to one of, perhaps one of the, the current leading uh, researchers in the field, which is an Icelandic professor of uh, psychology, Erlanda Haraldsson. And he, he is deeply fascinated by the subject, but... Uh, like you, um, I, I still think that along with a lot of things related to spiritualism, um, there are so many contradictions. We have, you know, so many people who, who are effectively the same group of people, spiritualists, uh, reincarnationists, survivalists. They all have different theories. And, you know, from my, from my perspective, if they all said the same thing or, or, you know, even a slight variation on the same theme, I, it would be much more convincing and much more compelling um, than these, you know, multiple different theories and ideas that, that they keep putting forward. I mean, that's the whole thing. A lot of it, because they are theories, I mean, you look at it from your own point of view, basically. I mean, what you believe in is how you can explain different things away. I mean, it's very simple. If you believe in reincarnation, you can take some of these experiences and say, okay, this is reincarnation. But if you believe, you don't believe in reincarnation, you believe in a spiritualist world, you can look at it in a different way and say, okay, this is because of, you know, some type of spiritual influence or or tapping into the the greater consciousness or whatever. I mean, so it's very difficult and and scientifically almost impossible to improve. But I know I did hear the doorbell, which means pizza's here. So we have to wrap it up. I saw the bell. I saw the bell. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anything new and exciting for you? Hopefully by next week, a brand new uh, internet router. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, it should be here on Friday. Um, And and once more, a a normal internet connection from out here in remotest West Wales. You you can always do the show like Richard Felix used to do. He used to do it by carrier pigeon. Richard Felix. Now, there's a voice from reincarnation, isn't it? We have to get him back on. I mean, I miss the old chap. Well, I'm sure he'll. I'm sure he'll come on and grace us with his presence. Mm-hmm. He's got something to sell, hasn't he? He's got psychic uh, spirit and we all have psychic and science. That's what we do. Yeah, we can promote that for him. You know, you know what's interesting too is, is speaking about uh, carrier pigeons. I, I, I had saw about a month ago they had found this message. Uh, from a carrier yeah. pigeon from World War Two, and, right. and they couldn't decipher it. Nope, they still can't. But that's the end of the show, I think. Okay, till next week. Uh, you'll listen to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick, and we'll see you next week. And tune in tomorrow for Ghost Chronicles Next Generation, seven p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Till then, good night and God bless everyone. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good 